Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This week's episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbis Alex Israel and Svi Hirschfeld on Parshat Shof Team. To download the most recent episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Alex Israel and Svi Hirschfeld. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I am privileged to be with my friend, colleague, and teacher, Rabbi Alex Israel, to discuss Parshat Shoftim. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Tzvi. Delight, delightful to be with you. Well, thank you. Not too many people say that. So uh, Parshat Shoftim, among other things, introduces a structure of governance and leadership. Would you agree with that characteristic? 100%. We have, uh, it starts off with the shofet, with the, with the judge, or with the Supreme Court even, and the whole notion of court procedure. It moves on to the, to the king, and uh, you know we have the whole notion of a, a national administration. And then we have other modes of leadership as well. We're going to talk about the priest, and even the prophets. Okay. Four different, uh, I wonder if these people are meant to be checks and balances, one against the other. Well, that's an interesting question. Also, the confusion of, their, does their authority overlap? What happens when they don't agree? Uh, and we know that kings and prophets didn't always have the nicest relationship. You would know far better than I as a person of, uh, uh, of the prophets. A person of the prophets. <laughs> yeah. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> So let's begin and talk about the shofet, the judge, and, and what's laid out here. It seems to me right off the bat that the, the, the first of all, a couple of things, that there's not only judges, also shotrim, the idea that the judge is going to adjudicate, and then someone's going to have to make sure that the ruling is followed. So shoter in today's Hebrew is a policeman. So you're sort of saying there's people who who actually set the law, who legislate the law, and then there are people who... Uh, enforce the law. That seems to be, at least that's how Rashi seems to explain the, 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 the roles here. And 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 in fact, the, the instruction at the beginning of the parsha is shoftim shotrim titenecha b'chol sha'arecha. And there, there's an indication mentioned by the, the, the halacha that there's actually a requirement that law be accessible, that law be in every single b'chol palach or palach, in every single locale, so, and I remember hearing this from, from our teacher, Ravara Lichtenstein, who said that this is really important, both for the, for the judiciary, that the judiciary, you're not, actually the halacha says, if you're a judge, you're not meant to live in a different city than the people you're judging, because the judges have to understand the reality and have to be living within the social environment. But the people, the people always also need to feel that law is at hand, right? That, uh, you know, it's like, if you if you see a police car along the highway, <laughs> you slow down. In other words, law means there needs to be a feeling within society. There are judges and there are law enforcers within society so that it is a society, an ordered society, a legal society. Well, it's interesting. You, what you've opened up there is this idea that the reason we need laws and enforcement is precisely because people will not naturally follow the rules, right? That this says, the idea of tzedek, 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 if you're going to chase after justice, I always think, why do you have to chase after it? Because it won't come naturally. 
that the Torah is already acknowledging that the, this this holy people, this nation of priests, uh, with, with all of those lofty aspirations, there's going to be conflict. Individuals will put their own needs in front of others. They will harm each other, and therefore justice and a system of justice has to be present precisely because we're not all such but tzaddikim all the time right this this notion uh of hobbes hobbes idea of government that you know the state of human beings is a war of every man against every man and that were it not for the law were not for the government life would be solitary poor nasty brutish and short <laughs> if you want an optimistic yeah that's view. really going to lift my day <laughs> well no well it shows the i mean sometimes you really when we do feel a breakdown of law in certain situations or when we watch it happen we do realize that there is this you know nietzschean side of you know people really eating each other if the, if you allow them and that's where i find something fascinating because the very next line after it says vishaftu et amish batsedek is uh, the, the, after it says that the people should, um, that the judges should judge the people with with justice, it actually goes for the goes for the the judges themselves and says, "Do not pervert justice. Do not recognize faces. In other words, don't play favorites, right? And don't take bribes." Because bribery will blind the eyes of the wise. And I remember a few years ago when. Um, there was an Israeli politician who um, was caught for bribery and uh, was put on put uh, put on trial. And uh, there was a talk show on the radio, and one of his fellow politicians said, "What do you mean? This guy is a tzaddik, right? He is a righteous man. Oh, he's just taken a bribe." And I wanted, to, I was yelling at the TV screen. What do you mean? Bribery blinds the eyes of the wise. It, 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 it falsifies the words of the righteous. You can be the most righteous person, but you start taking bribes, it messes you up. Well, but this is the problem, I guess, the built-in problem to the system, that if human beings are in charge of other human beings to follow the rules and, 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 and pursue justice, Who's in charge of them, right? This is why we might talk about why there's this multi-tiered system of leadership that maybe their job is to watch each other because each one of them can fall into the same trap that all of us can fall into. I wanted to follow up with you on this, on this other area that there's another aspect to the, to the job of the shofet, and that is to determine the law when we don't know what to do. That the Torah is acknowledging that the Torah itself does not tell us what to do in every situation. And that therefore we're going to need to consult and figure out, okay, what does the Torah want from us? I've encountered a case. I don't know what to do. Right. What you're referring to is is here in chapter 17, verse 8. That's what you're referring to? Yes, I am. It's the law of the what is later called the Beit in Hakadol or the Sanhedrin. And it says, when something is too far for you, it's too it, it's out of reach. Lamishpat, being Dam a matter of blood, in other words, maybe a matter of ritual law, being Din Ladim, a matter of civil law, being Negala Nega. And you go to the Kohanim Alvim Velashofet, to the plenum, to the Supreme Court, and they will tell you what the law is. And this is the notion that even though God has we've got a divine law, that the the rabbis or the 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 the, the ultimate court has been entrusted to create new law. Correct? Yeah. 
not only to create new law, but even as we know, to suspend existing law, right? To to reapply, reinterpret that that these these verses uh, in our history will form the argument for the sages about why we Jews have to interpret the Torah, why we sometimes have to add to the Torah, why we sometimes have to say, no, don't do that law because it might come to violate this other law. It's, that, it's, it's so interesting. We have a bracha, bracha that we all know, like, that God commanded us to wash our hands before bread. Or a Hanukkah candle, or, Han- or, or read or, the Megillah. Right, and all of these are rabbinic laws, but we say that God commanded us. So how can that be? And the Talmud says, well, it's down to these psukim, lotasur, right? Do not divert from what the court tells you, that we are, um, not we, but uh, that the the Jewish people are instructed to appoint this rabbinic body to legislate new laws. And this is empowered with divine, divine power. Because the Torah is recognizing, I want to come to something that uh, you said earlier in our secret session when we prepared, about the inevitable tension between a divine law or rule and human life. Wait, tell me a bit more about that. What, what are you saying? That the Torah itself seems to understand that no matter how complete the Torah that Moshe gets is, when this Torah is going to interact with the changing demands and conditions and problems of human life, there's going to be tension, there's going to be a lack of clarity, there are going to be problems. So I, I was giving the example before, but let's say we know that you mustn't mix meat and milk. But so a, a drop of uh, milk spills into your chicken soup, right? Even that's rabbinic. But um, a drop, so just chuck it out, throw it out. But the rabbis have to come along with definitions. They say, one second, it can't be, or, okay, meat and milk, fine, but maybe there are lines at which you know, this mixture is not a mixture anymore, or the soup isn't. And we come to new definitions, and we're always needing to create new definitions. Once upon a time, there was a, I don't know, patriarchal society, and now we are dealing with all sorts of new gender definitions, and we need to come up with answers to what that is going to be able to, you know, what's that going to mean for Jewish law and Jewish ritual? So this Parsha is already setting us up for the inevitable tension between a fixed eternal Torah and the change and development and dynamics of ongoing human life and human society. Right. And I'm I'm so interested in the fact that, you know, sometimes in a liberal environment, we look at the human being and we say, well, I'm a good person. (laughs) Everything in me is good. But the Torah is very realistic about human weakness. So that's true about the judge, where the first thing we hear, it doesn't even tell us what the judge's responsibilities or rights are or what their constitutional you know, role is. It says your role is to be a judge, but don't take bribes, don't play favorites. Be an honest judge. And the same thing with the king. Ah, let's talk about the king, because this troubles some people, right? We don't aspire these days to having a king. We see a king as somewhat backwards. And you're talking to some. Okay, something with I'm a British sorry, accent. I forgot. <laughs> I was I was speaking to a queen also. I'm gonna throw a queen in there as well. But uh we don't aspire, Alex. Even you don't want that, that king or queen to have too much power. You want that person to be symbolic and to wear the fancy clothes and drive in the fancy carriage, but you don't want them determining how much taxes you pay. 100%. So what do you make of this section about having a king? So the law of the king 
I mean, I'll just say once you've already raised that question, I, I very much uh, I love the interpretation of the Natsiv, Rav Natsali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who says that really today, in today's world, the definition of king is just the government of the time. And today, if the Torah was to be employed, we would apply that to a democratic government. But if we go back to the to the actual text here, on the one hand, som tasim alecha melech, you must place over you a king. But on the other hand, the ne- very next line says that there are areas of weakness, that the king mustn't have too many horses, the king mustn't indulge by having too many wives. And if you're wondering how it's too many, the rabbi said no more than 18. 18, yeah. 18 seems to be a reasonable number. <laughs> For a king. And, and don't have too much gold and silver and what it seems to be and even and even more than that which is maybe this is the most shocking line uh, he must not be too elevated over his brethren uh, that he there is no divine right of kings in the ancient world they thought that the king was part of the cosmos that he was almost a demi-god and if the king didn't exist the world would fall apart there's no divine right of king the king is one of the brothers the word ach ach the word of, for brother comes up time after time. But the Torah is aware that when it comes to, I'll put it quite simply, um, not too much silver and gold means don't get too involved in, in, in wealth and indulgence. Not to have too many wives means don't do, get too involved in sex and sexual indulgence. And don't have too many horses means the other weakness of kings. Don't become a warlord. Um, don't be involved in conquest and just worrying about how many creating a huge empire. That this is these are the weaknesses of of people in power, money, fame, power, you know, all of these yeah. things. And the Torah's warning it's saying, create a structure, but that tr- structure is inherently open to corruption. And we every country needs a needs a government, but at the same time, we're human beings and we have human failings. And the Torah's solution to this, I think, the fact that he should carry a Torah with him and study the Torah all the time. He's got to remember that his job is not to be powerful and wealthy and important. His job is to lead the people and represent the people and even be an intermediary. I always thought it was very interesting if you go to the to Ir David, the city of David, and you see the way the ancient city of David was structured, where if that big building at the top of the hill was indeed the palace of David, So you have a structure where you've got, in descending order, the temple, the king's palace, and then the rest of the people. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, what a great reminder for the king to wake up every morning and realize, I'm not at the top of the hill. The top of the hill is the temple. God's house is the top of the hill. And for the people to look, look up and realize... The king is not the ultimate king. There's an ultimate king above him. And in fact, his real job is to be an intermediary. He's supposed to serve God... And, and thereby make us better as well. Right. I don't know if they ever got that message, but it seems to me it's a very well, powerful it, message. Well, I think what you're, that, that line is very telling because um, on the one hand, you know, anybody who reads through the Tanakh, um, reads through Sefer Shmuel, I think we all feel that huge ambivalence that the Tanakh has about it. Sa- the people come to Samuel, they say, we've been invaded for centuries, it's time to get a king. And Samuel says, that's a terrible idea. And he, he warns them and tells them, all of the awful you know, bru- things, awful brutality things. that the king is going to sequester your fields and he's going to draft your sons and your daughters into the army. And the people say, no, no, we, we want a king. So he goes to God and God says, 
I think it's a terrible idea, but let's do it. Let's do it, right. Let's do it. And then... And, and then, don't take it personally. <laughs> then Samuel has the coronation, and he rebukes the people. The people say, okay, listen, if it's such a bad idea, we won't do it. And he goes, no, 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 go for it. And the whole of the rest of the, the, the Bible, um, you get to the first king, King Saul, right? Again, once again, God initiates it, the prophet does it, and then, but Saul ends up always doing what he wants to do instead of God. Even King David, right, who's seen as this, you know, we actually pray for the restoration. Yeah, he's the paragon of the great king. We, we, the Tanakh spends half its time talking about, so it's true that David never worshipped idols and he always, you know, led the nation under God and towards God's laws. But on his personal life, the Tanakh spends chapter after chapter talking about David's sin with Bathsheba and the way that his family was a complete train wreck. And I know that you can read through Tanakh and then you've got Solomon. Okay, maybe he's our big hope. He'll build the temple. And yet Solomon sins in so many different ways. So uh, he's got an arrogance. He's got a, you know, he, the Bible even says that he worships idols. Um, he's very attracted to other cultures. So the, I, this, this, I think this, uh, I don't know if we have this nuance in our society. Um, well, this is the problem. On the one hand, if you, if you idealize everything, and you ignore the problems and you ignore the pitfalls, you're going to end up with something terrible. On the other hand, if you say everything is terrible and there is no system, well, the chaos that will result from not having an ordered system is far worse. So the question is how you both propose a solution, propose a system, at the same time maintain a healthy critique of that system as problems is very difficult to do. And perhaps that's why we have these multiple systems going on. We don't just have a king. We don't just have a chauffeur or a judge, but we have a chauffeur and a judge and two more institutions of authority or voice in society. And that's the Kohen, the priest, and the Navi. Let's talk about the Kohen briefly. I hear priests and I think of Catholic churches. What do you think is the job of the Kohen? Uh, so that's that's really uh, fascinating. I actually the the um, there's a wonderful passage of Nachmanides the Ramban uh, in Vayachi, where the Ramban is talking about the Maccabees. Um, you know, we all celebrate Hanukkah every year, but uh, what happened was the Maccabees were priests, and uh, they ended up taking uh, staging a revolution and taking over as the kings. And they're also a great case in point because very soon. They become became incredibly corrupted and also adopted all Hellenized. The, they became After Hellenized. War against the Greeks. <laughs> yeah, you fight against the system and then you become the system. Uh, the Ramban says that part of the problem of the of the uh, priests was that they should never have gone into government. The Kohen, a priest, cannot become a a melech, cannot become a king. And the question is, what does that mean? And that means that we have two separate powers. Um, I'll say something which maybe rings with a certain contemporary, you know, you've got to separate religion and state. Now, that's not true. You just said that <laughs> you've got to, you just said that the, the, the king himself carries a safer Torah. Right. So there is no absolute separation of religion and state. The, the, the king is meant to be a religious figure too. And yet there are certain arenas which should not be tainted with politics and with this worldly concerns. And to that degree, the priests themselves had certain cities which they were granted where they didn't need to get into the rough and tumble of the economy. So they weren't meant to, meant to be involved in the economy. They weren't meant to be drafted for the army. 
They were released from a lot of civil responsibilities in ordinary life, and they were meant to dedicate their lives to the temple and to teaching Torah, as it says in at the end of Devarim, Yorumish Israel, that they will teach the, the Torah to all of Israel and the laws to Jacob. So you almost see some people who are meant to be spiritual figures, they're not invited to the corridors of power. They're not invited to the corridors of landowning. They're not invited to the to the to the war front. So they can't become war heroes. They can't become governmental figures. They can't become landowners. They're just meant to dedicate themselves to religion. Now, a good question is whether this we, we can argue whether this model works. Remember, we're in a society where frequently it was always hereditary systems. So if my father was a tailor, I was a tailor. My father was a made horseshoes. I made horseshoes. So likewise, if my father was a Kohen, I'm a Kohen too. I'm a Kohen too. And in our world, we are a world of opportunity and we forge our own way. So it's a little foreign to us. And indeed, <laughs> the priests also at times became corrupt. We've just commemorated Tisha B'Av and there are many, many different uh, stories in the Talmud about times when the priesthood became uh, corrupt. But the basic system is that knowing that human beings are, you know, in order that religion itself doesn't become corrupt, they try to take the priest out of out of government, out of uh, the walls, out of landowning, and they thought that would be the best way to sort of create this class of people that were devoted to the spiritual things. Right. So they're the spiritual voice in society. If the if the judge is about the law. Uh, in terms of the application of the law, and the king is about sort of national and civil society, the Kohen is meant to be the one that gets up in shul and reminds everybody, love God, fear God, uh, elevate yourself, uh, devote yourself to uh, becoming as holy as you can be. Right. And sometimes, as we know from the Midrash, the Kohen was served a role within society, actually uh, not, a, not a role of law, but a role of mediation. Um, our friend's Rabbi Daniel Roth, right, wrote his entire PhD. Who's a Kohen? Is he? He is. Okay, so there you have it. And he wrote his whole thing about Aaron's role. And uh, he even identified it in certain ancient tribes uh, amongst the Bedouin community, uh, the role of the priest being a mediator and being Ohev Shalom, Rodev Shalom, being able to play a role in between when law has its rough edges. Well, right, especially because the law sides with one person and mediation tries to get people to agree to an accommodation. So I guess you have to decide if you and I are in a big fight, we have to decide. Do we want to go to the Shofet and one of us wins and one of us loses, or do we want to go to Daniel Roth and see if we can repair and meet somewhere you know, in the middle? When we're talking about this, there's a wonderful scene in in, um, in the book of Malachim uh, where the king tells the priests, you know, says to them, the temple's looking really shabby. It's time for a renovation. And um, years go by and nothing changes. They don't renovate the temple. And it seems like that the priests, some money's going missing. And the king says, you know what we're going to do? And they actually make the first uh, tzedakah box. They take a box and everybody goes to the temple is meant to put in their half shekel. And when they come to um, take the money, they come in, a priest comes in and the and, and the king comes in. And they, they come in together and they check, they open they take the padlock off the box. And and that's a great example where you've got two areas who both are invested, um, and yet they don't 100% trust one another. And then you need what we call, I mean, American the American system of government was full of this nervousness. Yeah, checks and balances. Checks and balances. They they had experienced the, the harsh side of the, the British monarchy and 
and and and other uh, you know dictatorial systems or or oppressive systems, and they were determined to find a way where each branch of government and even within the system of federal government versus vis a vis the individual states, how could could you try and finesse this in such a way? So what you're suggesting really is the Shofet, the Melech, and the Kohen are deliberately both separate and yet they overlap. There's a deliberate tension there between how they operate and and who's what authority they have. And it's deliberate in the sense that it allows them to sort of hold each other in check a little bit, to remind each other, to contain each other, which is a very powerful message. Right. I just want I want to I want to just maybe um say that there's a fourth, and that is the the Navi. I was wondering when we we're going to get to the Navi, but since I am not a Navi, I didn't know for sure if we would get there. Uh, so the Navi is the prophet. And I'll just say this, uh, this I heard many years ago from my teacher of Yol bin Nun, who said that essentially, you know, if you think about Moses, Moses was both prophet and national leader. He's like the king and the prophet. Yeah. Joshua. And Shofet, by the way. That's also true. Yeah. Then Joshua is also in some way the king. He leads the nation in war and he's the prophet. He communicates with God. And the big fragmentation when we created a king was we actually separated them into two people. Yeah. That we said we've got the king and he leads the national leadership from, from a perspective of what kings worry about, power and money and the economy. And and then you've also got the, um, the, the prophet. But he says that's the whole point. The king and the prophet are both coming from totally different vantage points. The king is appointed essentially by the people. And he is looking for support from the people. He's watching the opinion polls. He's watching his popularity. The prophet is being called by God. When the king follows the Torah, they have a great relationship. But when they don't, we have these, you know, epic clashes between kings and prophets because the prophet is always reminded the king that he's not on track. So you have Elijah and Ahab. You have, you know, you have all these different clashes. Well, it's interesting because the parsha itself invites this tension in that early on it said, if you don't know what to do, go to the Shofet. And then later on, Moshe says, don't worry, if you don't know what to do, God's going to send a prophet like me wow. to help you out. And I've always wondered, well, wait a minute, we have the Shofet. Why does Moshe promise a Navi? And I think what you said, uh, I'm going to take one step further, uh, this idea that it's all about perspective. The Shofet has the Torah. And his job is to interpret the Torah, apply the Torah, understand God's will through the Torah. The Melech, I think, is meant to lead the people. And he's meant to figure out on a very uh, realpolitik what's happening in the world, what's happening in the treasury, where are the people, what's happening with taxes. And he's out there looking at the world. Again, he's got the Torah for values, but his perspective is on the, the actual world in front of him. Then you have the Navi. The Navi is hearing God's voice. And here and now. Here and now, what God is telling us is needed now. And all three of them could really look at the world quite differently depending upon their perspective. Uh, and all the voices, though, are meant to be present somehow. It's also so interesting because if you're humble, then that could be a wonderful system. But if, as sometimes happens, people have, and frequently people have quite large egos, then it's a recipe for a, a huge clash because everybody can resist the other one and uh, you know it can be quite problematic and claim the other one doesn't have real authority this king is not legitimate these uh, these judges are corrupt these prophets are false so in a way i think it comes back to us as the people what you're suggesting which i may be taking a step too far is at the end we have to decide 
who we're listening to, who we're following, and what balance we want to create through all these voices. This is not a system of leadership that turns us into sheep, where we just have to do what's what we're told. We're actually told multiple things in different ways in different times. And it's going to be up to us to figure out how to balance all those voices and create the society that we're ultimately responsible for. Wow, that's, that's very powerful. Okay. Yeah, it seems very hard. Well, listen, so now all of you know what your homework is. You have to balance all these different voices of king, priest, prophet, and, and, and rabbi slash judge, figure out what God wants from us, and build the perfect society. I imagine you could knock that out in a week or 10 days, and then we'll give you something else to do. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, conversation, Smith. Thank you very much, Rav Alex. It was a pleasure as always. Please continue to listen to more Pardes podcasts in the future uh, and have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast.